0: Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. It's a-
1: Everybody, I'm the host that talks first. D, I'm the host talks 2nd or Corey Petty. Yeah, but they don't even know what show they're listening to. Oh, uh, welcome to the Bitcoin podcast, everybody. This is the Bitcoin podcast. They know what they're
0: listening to. They just heard that sweet, sexy intro music from yeah. Gibbs.
1: Yeah, but I'm talking about like people that don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like they don't.
0: But anyways,
1: if you're one of those people, don't worry about it. But if you know what you're listening to, I'm D. That's Corey. Uh, And welcome to episode 279 of the Bitcoin Podcast. It's going to be a good episode. I feel it in my guts.
0: Yeah, the interview was actually um, quite long, but we did that on purpose because we didn't want to stop talking. Um, So the front end of this is going to be relatively small. Got one thing we want to talk about we thought was funny this week. Um, How was your week? We didn't do that last week. I think it was good. Audit on status still going strong. So it takes up most of my time. Dope. And uh decent week here. Find any new anything? Oh, I'm not gonna talk about that stuff till it's out. I mean, oh, okay. No okay. nothing serious. It's... No, I'm not
1: talking about the status. I'm oh. just talking about like in general.
0: Like, oh no. Just like... chugging along. Okay. Yeah.
1: Well, I was chill. I um I nexted the Jamaican house not house clerk, but uh front desk clerk. So she got nexted. I don't know what you're talking From about. Tinder, remember? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she wanted to have my babies. And I said, no. And so that's where that goes. So, <laughs> that's the end of that conversation. Yeah. And so that was interesting. And then, yeah, nothing else too big happened, really. Uh, pretty boring week in Columbus, Ohio. A lot of closed malls in Columbus, Ohio, which is weird to me. Because... It's just, it's just a sign of the times, I guess. Like, Three different malls were just completely shut down. One of them had a community college in it. But it's just weird to see a mall that empty, that dead. But anyways, that's how my week went. Uh, tried Bob Evans for the first time sucky kind People
0: of. keep people claim rave about it. I don't know why. I Kevin figured it, it out. They're talking about Aaron's like you've never been to Bob Evans. That's my yeah. wife by the way. She's from Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> I was yeah. like no nah, it's like a it looks like Denny's or some shit. And my was response like, is
1: going to be for good reason. I haven't been to, I've been to Bob Evans <laughs> one time. Mass potatoes taste like water. But anyways.
0: Um, yeah. So uh, I, one one thing did happen to me this week that I thought was pretty funny uh, which is probably going to take oh. up the rest of the time. <laughs> One thing did happen this week that I thought was pretty funny. Uh, we could spend the rest of the time talking about that. Someone tried to scam me. Yeah, someone tried to scam me on Telegram. I got, I got a good, I got a good feeling when uh, a guy named Dude Frank, Duke Frank, did they send Bob's? Yeah. <laughs> Please send Bob's. <laughs> he just starts off with a you know good old random hey, you know. His
1: name is Duke Frank.
0: Duke Frank. <laughs> He's got a picture of like him smiling, just like kind of a dude smiling with his thumbs up oh, in the wow. picture of the profile. And it just started, it, it, You always know something's wrong when like you just get a random message from someone you don't know that just says hi, yeah, or hey.
1: hey. Or his name I, is Duke Frank. That's are you into Are you
0: into <laughs> cryptocurrency? I was like, yeah, of course. <laughs> and so he's like, it's like, I forgot what he started talking about. And he's like, I, Have you heard about this new amazing investment experience? And he sends over some he sends over a link. That just has, it's just a video of inspirational music and, and, uh, oh my God. and like a, a mining facility. Oh, that sounds great. With like the words, like, you no, know, it's real, it's real, like, you know, room to expand, state of the art equipment. And like them, like, move, like walking into like a back room with like the, the label of whatever the shitty company's name was, bit mm-hmm. something or whatever, it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. And he's like, if you invest, and he's you like a, an investment sheet. You get guaranteed, at least I think it was like forty percent returns in three days.
1: Forty percent in three days. Yeah. Holy shit.
0: And I was like, "Those echo, as I said, "Neat. That sounds great." <laughs> and that's just all I said, just because I was I wasn't sure if I wanted to entertain this guy and see how far things would go, or, or like just say go, go fuck off and screw and screw yourself. I was I was I would I didn't know what mindset I was in at the time, so I just gave him the minimal amount of things to see where he'd go with it. He's like, well, now that I've told you about this amazing opportunity, do you want to invest? And I was like, you haven't explained anything. <laughs> but it, I go, I have a lot of money, but I usually don't invest in things unless it's o- over five thousand dollars. That's what you said to
1: him. Yeah. Okay. So could, then he starts to get a little wet, right? There. Yeah. Excuse me. I said no. like, because I wanted to
0: see how far we could how far we could go with this, because his English was pretty bad. Probably it was clear that he wasn't a native English speaker, or he set himself out to be not an English native English speaker. <laughs> Started to get warm it's like belly. it goes. It goes, The minimal amount. It's investment is fifty dollars, and I was like, "That's lunch money."
1: <laughs> that's my favorite.
0: So that's lunch money. Don't that's, waste my time.
1: That's lunch money, son. Get your fifty
0: dollars <laughs> out of here. Because so I wanted to make it sound like I had a bunch of money, and I liked crypto but didn't understand it. And he's like, "Okay, well, I need your wallet address. You need to register at the site and put your wallet address in there." And I was like, "Oh, I have. I think I have a wallet with my crypto. I'll have to ask them about it." <laughs> you know, just to, to make sure that I can release that information. Apparently, I'm Google searching something now with my voice. Thanks, Google. And that didn't seem to strike a chord with him. He said, "Okay, great. Have you registered yet?" And I was like, "No, I don't trust you. <laughs> I need I need a way for I need a way for me to trust you. You haven't explained anything. What do you get out of this?" And he's like, "Oh, I get five percent of whatever you invest." And I was like, "Oh, okay. That seems..." like a reasonable thing, but how can I trust you? I don't I don't know anything about this company because you haven't explained anything. He's like, well, I, I, I've, I I've made money. I go, like, well, first I showed you the video, but I've made money. So he sends me this email or like a, a snapshot, like a phone picture of an email that says, <laughs> it's like a deposit email, like, hey, congratulations, we've deposited $120 into this account. And it shows account number and transaction ID, like those words with not available after them. So that I was like what do the NAs mean on those on those things is that like what, what does that mean I don't understand and he's like oh it's because I didn't do this one part of registration so they didn't have that information I was like okay where are they sending money to <laughs> and he just like moves on like nothing happened <laughs> and so like okay I don't trust you how can I trust you and I said I know I know how I can trust you you send me 50 dollars that way I know that I can trust you because no one who's trying to scam would ever send someone money, and that way, if you send me fifty dollars, I'll invest five thousand. That way, you get the whatever returns. I think it was like twenty percent returns on that, and whatever I would and the five percent of whatever I make. That's so much more money. We can get we can get rich on this.
1: <laughs> so you just flipped the script, Donald. That's my favorite. <laughs> and part. he's like,
0: I don't. I don't think that's a good idea. I don't have that much money right now and I'm trying to invest all my money into this. I was like, "Well, think about that. I'm giving you so much more money for the same thing. So if you you you'd make so much more money on $50 by doing this than if you'd put all of your money into that account. <laughs> and if if this is really true, then there's there's it's a it's a win-win situation for you." And he's like, "Okay, this sounds good." Wow. I was like, I was like, I can't believe. He failed, I can't. Scammed, I can't, I can't believe this is going to happen. You
1: got the you got and the so, D student. And so
0: I'm, I'm talking in the Slack as this is going on because I have I've gone from I'm reluctant to talk to this dude. I don't have time for it. To okay, this is my day now. I'm gonna spend some time on this. <laughs> and so he's like, okay, um, I need to find an address for you to send money to. How do I get that? I said my wallet said that's this address. I've asked my crypto, and they said it's this address. First off, my crypto doesn't have Bitcoin addresses, so there's an issue. Didn't flag <laughs> that one. Um, and and I send him. I, I was talking with a Slack group, um, and I was like, "Hey guys, I got a scammer, and I think he's about to send me fifty dollars."
1: <laughs> I remember that.
0: And I'm sending pictures of like the conversation in the in the in the Slack to everyone, and you know, I was like, people like, "Well, you don't want him to send it to your account." because yeah. you don't want to be involved with scammers in any of your accounts. So it's probably best if you like make them burn it. And I was like, I know what I'll do. I'll have them send it to the genesis block. <laughs> like the genesis address of Bitcoin. Cuz that way like it's it's effectively burned. Yeah. And whatever. It's, it seems like a reasonable thing to do. It's Satoshi's. Though. And I can't send them like all zeros address, right? Like the burn address.
1: It all returns to
0: Satoshi's. <laughs> and so and then like it kind of waved like waved off after that cuz he wanted he wanted more information about where I'm from and all kinds of things. You end
1: up sending the money.
0: No, I don't Damn, think so. I, I haven't did. checked. I got I really Well, happy. See, like when I checked, I I looked up the account. So I'd send him the thing and i just I went on the block explorer to look, and someone had just sent a transaction. Oh. And I was like, Oh shit, he did it. He just did it. Oh. And so I got excited, but that was like for like fifty cents or something. That's I wild. but people oh. must be using it for a bird address. Because oh. people continuously send money to it. To Satoshi's to address? Yeah. That's weird. Well, it's effectively burned, so why not?
1: Why would you be burning Bitcoin? People
0: burn Bitcoin for various services and things like that. As a part of the service, is a burn, a proof of burn. That's so weird. What I don't we know. Burn it all. I don't know. Maybe they're just dumb.
1: Yeah, but if we burn it all and there's no more Bitcoin, like, what the fuck?
0: Uh, then yeah, that'd be stupid.
1: That'd be fucking dumb.
0: <laughs> I think it's gonna, we're not in any yeah. serious issue with that. I mean, effectively, every key that has been lost is burned. Yeah. So, that's a lot of coins that are no longer in circulation that will no longer be in circulation. So, there's
1: 18 million that have been minted, but there's nowhere near that amount that are probably still out there.
0: No, not even close.
1: Is okay. it safe to say, like, we're effectively tapped out on Bitcoin? Do you think, like, if there's only 21 million? We probably lost about three.
0: We've lost way more than three.
1: So, then that's it. All that's coming in is all that will ever come in. Well, yeah. that, that, that's
0: obvious. That makes it's a tautology. That's yeah. That's how it works.
1: <laughs> but. Like, we're already maxed out, I think. I mean, for Bitcoin. Every 10 minutes, we just get add a little bit or a little more than max, but I mean, 21 million, th- 3 million are gone already. That's 18 million right there. Way more than 3 million. Damn. That's crazy. Go tell all your friends. Hashtag buy Bitcoin. Hashtag not investment <laughs> advice. Hashtag kind <laughs> of.
0: So, uh, yeah, but no, no investment advice. I know. Anyway, um, we get a surprise, a special treat for you. This is not uh, A tasty treat. This episode... With, is with Cory Doctorow. Um yeah. he's a fucking boss, by the way. Yeah, it was an outstanding episode. Great yeah. conversation. Um,
1: like, we stumbled into interviewing Tom Brady. That's pretty much exactly what <laughs> the, the Tom Brady of sci-fi. Like, that's exactly what happened.
0: Well, like, I would have liked to have gone more because I would like to challenge some of the things that he says or yeah. how he used this stuff. But he has really good points. He definitely comes to the, to the table with um, talking points and statistics. He's done this yeah. before, and he's certainly a talker. But he, like, uh, there's parts of this interview that I want to just like take apart and just broadcast that by itself.
1: Yes. I legitimately went into this interview asking myself, "Who the hell is Corey Doctoro?"
0: To why do you keep saying it that way? It's Doctoro. No, it's not. He's not a Marvel character. <laughs> Doctoro. Doctoro. Doctoro.
1: <laughs> I can't say it right. He literally cannot say his name. <laughs> o. There you go. <laughs> okay. It'd be cool if he was a doctor, Doctor Doctor.
0: Yeah, that'd be that'd be a good name.
1: Um, he's no, he is a doctor. He's a he's a um yeah. What do you call it, uh, when they just give it to you because honorary biology. doctor? Yeah,
0: he's an honorary doctor. I'm sure. But
1: yeah, he said it in the interview. He's like, yeah, hey, was he was honorary doctor.
0: But was it not? Hey, yeah, he was an honorary doctor. was yeah. an honorary professor. Okay.
1: Doctor Doctor. We can
0: look back at his credentials about yeah. this, but I think you'd enjoy the interview, and it's long. And we're not going to do anything afterwards because it's a great interview and you should just be listening to that.
1: Yeah, man. Shout, shout out to you. Um, why am I saying Dr. Rowe?
0: I don't know,
1: man. No, that doesn't make sense. Um, well, I love the interviews. I actually, I think it's my favorite interview that I've had. I think it is. Like I, I was I just like when I started an interview not knowing who the person is. Quite honestly, I was doing the research, looking him up, and it got more and more badass. And then actually talk them, I actually talked to him. was like, wow, I could listen to this guy talk forever. We, there's so much that I want to pick his brain about. Like, even the small stuff. Like, what's your favorite Hot Pocket, bro? Like, elaborate. But, anyways, um, here's the interview. I'm going to let you do it because I'm going to say his name, Dr. Rowe. Now, I got it. Here's the interview with Corey Dr. Rowe. Here. Go read his books. Here. everyone welcome to another one of the interviews with the bitcoin podcast what why are you laughing yeah keep going (laughs) what are you laughing at anyways welcome to another interview at the bitcoin podcast and uh today we are joined by Corey doctoro and uh i just said it no i just you said it wrong keep going okay Corey (laughs) doctoro i apologize mr doctoro um, but welcome to the show, man.
2: Hey, thank you very much. So, so you asked me how I wanted to be introduced. I offered to introduce myself. Uh, I'm a science fiction novelist and an activist. I work with a non-profit called the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and I'm a pretend academic. I never got a degree, but I have some academic appointments. I'm a visiting professor of library science at the University of North Carolina and a visiting professor of computer science at the Open University in the UK and an MIT Media Lab research affiliate. Um, I write science fiction novels about lots of different things, but generally contemporary technology and and what it means to have technology used against you and what it means to take over that technology and use it on your behalf.
0: Yeah, man, that's a lot of stuff that I'm interested in, Um, especially... Ah. uh, Oh, and I
2: should also mention, sorry, I should also mention I'm one of the owners and editors of a website called Boing Boing, where we write a lot about technology.
0: And other stuff I've noticed. I was checking out the website today. There's quite a bit on there, and I, I actually kind of like the um, the style of it. It's not overly in your face. It's these are the Thank you. these are the things that we talk about, and there aren't fourteen thousand clicks. Great, yeah. So uh, there's a lot we can unpack here. Um, you wrote an article. Well, I guess you didn't write an article, but it was it was brought to my attention that uh, I guess one of the co-founders of Boing Boing wrote an article on Wired regarding. Um, the trials and tribulations he went through when trying to uh, recover his seed phrase and pin from a treasure.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's Mark Fromfelder, my, my co-editor, uh, and uh, the founder of Boing Boing back in the 80s when it was a print magazine, he and his wife founded it. And he did, in fact, end up with a very locked down, thumb, secure thumb drive uh, that he couldn't get back access to that had a bunch of Bitcoin on
0: it. Yeah, would you consider that um, how technology can be used against you, or would you consider that something like um, the the kind of the the difficulties when people have to take the responsibility for their own own data?
2: You know, it's a it's a pretty good example of the risks that you take when you uh, when your threat model includes the company that made it. You know, and so if you're if you're a Bitcoin user who's hoping to put a lot of money in your uh, Bitcoin wallet, you really don't want the company that made the Bitcoin wallet to be able to get access to that money. Even if you trust them, as the amount of money on all the thumb drives ever made by that company mounts, the amount of security that they need to deploy in order to stop someone who's very motivated from gaining control over that back door and all those thumb drives, becomes uh, much more expensive, and eventually it becomes an effectively inconceivable level of security that they have to maintain. You know, they have to worry not just about someone um, finding a defect in their code, but also, uh, say, uh, government seizing them and demanding that they um, unlock uh, their devices on pain of legal retaliation. And then, you know, once there's a lot of money in there, they, they might have to worry about things like organized criminals kidnapping their family members and demanding that they unlock all those devices. So once you're worried that the company that made it might not always have your best interest at heart and you need to therefore have a device that, um, once you say lock this device and don't ever unlock it, it remains locked. Then if you use that power and then forget, you're really, uh, stuck. And, you know, this is a problem that, that recurs in lots of different contexts, you know, um, Uh, There was a a very celebrated and terrible story a few years ago where a prominent security researcher died on his way back from a big security conference. He and his wife were in a head-on collision, and his wife survived, and he hadn't left her backup keys or passphrases, and so he ran a little ISP business, all of his customers' accounts were locked forever, Uh, all of the family photos, all of their bills, everything locked away forever because... He built a secure system and didn't think about what a graceful failure mode for that secure system would look like and and you know it's a it's a difficult conundrum because we do want code that works uh, but um, when it works we have to be cognizant of the fact that uh, you know uh, as as the old safety sticker goes this machine has no no brain make sure you use your own
0: you know mm-hmm. you just you just highlighted something that I've been trying to kind of articulate over the past couple of years. And that is, as we decentralize technology and we put um, risk and responsibility to the edge, which is usually the end user, and provide functionality and products for them to use that give them the, uh, uh, I guess, intuition and available options to make good decisions, it puts a good amount of responsibility um, on the people making that software. Uh, providing good software having good failure modes uh so on and so forth and i'm not terribly sure that um the way the internet has grown and the i guess throngs of developers that have grown with it has led to um a lot of quality programming intuition on doing that so you know
2: there there are ways to finesse this right it's it's I, I think that there are elements of ways in which this is either or, you know, that it's all or nothing. You know, today we're having this debate about encryption um, in part because uh, attorney general Barr has once again um, reiterated the U S government's longstanding position that nobody should make working encryption devices and they should make devices that have uh, selectively been compromised so that they can be made to fail catastrophically. If you know the secret of how they were compromised and you know, Barr and and his ilk, they characterize anyone who says, well, we only know how to make encryption that works or encryption that doesn't work. We don't know how to make encryption that works until you need it to stop working. They call that an extremist position. They say, we're just trying to find a compromise between really, 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 really good encryption and merely really, really good encryption. And... You know, it, that, is, that is a compromise that you can make in other engineering contexts. You might say, we want to make a bridge that's really, really strong, but not really, 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 really strong. You know, you can put 10, 16 wheelers on it, but you can't fill them with depleted uranium. Um, but in encryption, it's a different kind of engineering challenge. It's more like, say, the challenge around making a spacesuit, right? A spacesuit that only has one small hole is effectively as useless as a spacesuit that is full of holes. Um, either your spacesuit is airtight or you shouldn't be using it. And, And that's really what it comes down to with encryption. You know, back to that idea of the threat model, once there's a secret that, if it's known, would compromise every tool in the world that relies on encryption, including all the conversations that are made with those tools and all the transactions that are protected with them, the amount of security that you have to deploy to keep that secret from escaping becomes effectively infinite, right? The number of dollars that some criminal will offer to some not very high paid government contractor to reveal that information becomes effectively infinite. The temptation to kidnap that contractor's family and torture them until that contractor gives up the information becomes infinite. The, uh number of people who are tempted to just take it because they just want to use it for something and they're sure it'll be fine and nothing bad could possibly happen becomes infinite. And it's very brittle because once that secret is out, it doesn't go back in again. Once that secret is breached, all the systems in the world that rely on it are breached forever. Uh, you, you know, we, we know about zero-day bugs uh, bugs that have been discovered but that the manufacturer doesn't know about yet. That the other end of the scale is the forever day bug, the bug that the manufacturer knows about but can't fix. So, f- for example, there's a, a new um, defect that was just released, uh, revealed in uh, iOS that the operating system that Apple uses for its iPhones, um, that is a forever day bug because it targets the boot ROMs and the boot ROMs as the, the, the RO in ROM stands for read-only. You can't change the code in the boot ROM once it's been released, and uh, the the um, this exploit, this vulnerability, is called Checkmate with an 8, C-H-E-C-K-M-8, attacks that code, and it's in uh, all the models of iPhones made for about eight years, so from about 2010 to about 2018. That bug is there, and there's literally no way to fix it, right? Uh, Apple would have to have everyone who has a phone who's worried about this bug send the phone back to Apple and then Apple would have to remove a secure chip from its logic board and replace it with one that had better code in it. There's no way to change the code in that chip because part of its security is this code is unchangeable. And if you're going to have backdoor encryption, you, you obviously want to do it in a way that the people you're targeting can't throw away the encryption that you've compromised and replace it with encryption that works. And so, part and parcel of any backdooring project is going to also be making that backdoor read-only, you know, permanent, immutable, which means that as soon as the secret of the backdoor is released, all of those devices are compromised forever, uh, non-patchably. And the amount of damage that can be wreaked by having non-functional crypto is effectively infinite, because crypto is used not just for Uh, you know, doing distributed Sudoku puzzles for your cryptocurrency uh, (laughs) and not just for allowing you to send messages to your friends without them being eavesdropped on. It's also used to do things like validate whether or not the new firmware load for your pacemaker or the automatic braking system on your car or the burglar alarm or the smoke alarm or the fire suppression system in your house, that those haven't been poisoned by malicious actors. And so once encryption is compromised, once there's a deliberate compromise, That becomes widespread, really all bets are off, right? We're talking about devices with wireless interfaces that are effectively giant batteries attached to people's hearts, right, implanted defibrillators that can be wirelessly connected to from 30 feet away that rely on encryption as the way to make sure that randos aren't sending new firmware to those devices that kill you where you stand. So this is a pretty important thing to recognize that whatever benefit uh, Attorney General Barr thinks that he'll get out of compromising crypto, it's far outstripped by the potential risk that he's imposing on all of us. I mean, we're seeing this now with the ransomware epidemic, where the NSA had hoarded a bunch of defects that they discovered, not ones that they'd introduced, but ones that they discovered in in common Microsoft Mm -hmm. operating systems. And um, they didn't tell Microsoft about them because they wanted those defects to linger, so they could use them to attack their adversaries. There's a name for this, this doctrine, this military doctrine. It's called NOBUS, which stands for no one but us, as in no one but us in the world is smart enough to discover these defects and no one but us will ever know about them. And then they leaked. And this is the code that's been married to old ransomware software to shut down whole cities, by the dozen, hospitals, schools, right? So, so this idea that you can have the secret and that it will last forever, And never breach and so you'll never have to pay the consequences you'll never get any blowback it's just wrong on its face and so when we ask about like well what does it mean to give users legitimate security tools that actually work as advertised and don't have a wink wink nudge nudge if i call you up and give you the right sob story you'll tell me what the secret code is that i need to enter into my device to recover those files that i lost the password for um it, it means that some of your failure modes are pretty bad, right? It means that sometimes people are going to get locked out of really important data, that that woman is never going to get back the family photos that are all she has to remember her dead husband by. But the um, worst failure modes, which is the failure mode where someone calls up a minimum wage call center employee halfway around the world and socially engineers them, into allowing them to take over your bank account or your car or your pacemaker so um the failure mode in which you forget your password is terrible but there's another failure mode which is that um someone who wants to do something terrible to you calls a minimum wage call center worker on the other side of the world and socially engineers them uh, or social engineers them into letting the attacker into your device right into your pacemaker into your car's anti-lock braking system into your fire suppression system and that's a much worse failure mode than the mere problem of being locked out of your data files or bitcoin uh, it's it's the worst failure mode of all those are all individual problems but us uh, an instance in which all of our devices are backdoored, that becomes like a societal problem it becomes like a public health problem or, or even an existential risk to the security of our species.
1: So if this this senator or sorry the, the guy who wants to like create this backdoor or compromisable crypto encryption, as you said, if he does this like he so is he doing this without any sort of guidance as to what the waterfall effect of of terribleness you just mentioned will be or like who yeah how, how's that's he a good to question
2: this? it's a little disheartening right because this actually like first uh came up during the clinton administration that's how long we've yeah. been fighting this stupid stupid fight uh, and and you know what happens is um people who are very serious grown-ups say uh, i am sure that there is a way that you can make this work And people who are cryptographers and security researchers say, no, we don't know how to. And they say, you are a mulish extremist and you nerds just need to nerd harder. And if you nerded harder, you know, I have faith in you and your ability to nerd so hard that someday you will, you know, make up, down and black, white and and so on. You know, there's a lot of different sayings that have come out of the crypto wars. Um, but the one that I like best is um, wanting it badly is not enough. You know, like, like I could, I would love to have crypto that worked perfectly, except when I needed it to fail, right? That would be amazing because it, it would mean that I could like uh, not have to worry about losing track of my password file, because if I ever did, I could make it fail and and I wouldn't be in a situation where like all the data that I had in the world would be gone forever. But I don't know how to do that. Nobody knows how to do that. So, you know, an example of this, uh, there is a guy, um, Malcolm Turnbull, who was the prime minister of Australia for about 11 seconds. Uh, they've, they've changed prime ministers like uh, on a quarterly basis for a couple of years because they're having their own political crisis, mostly related to the fact that um, they're beholden to extraction industries that don't believe that climate change is real. And so since they're also uh, a country that um, is uh, in the tropics and periodically on fire. This sets up some political instability. But but this guy, uh, uh, when he was prime minister, he was he wanted to build uh, an encryption standard that, uh, or have a law rather, that said um, encryption had to be designed so that the police could gain access to it if they needed to, and. Uh, He was at a a hearing or a meeting where some experts said, we don't know how to make encryption that works except when we need it to fail. The laws of mathematics say that if it works against bad guys, it works against good guys, too. And his response was, the laws of mathematics are very commendable. But I assure you that in Australia, the law of Australia is the law of Australia. Right (laughs) now, like. I, I, I've been around a lot and I I I have a pretty good like sense of what the stupidest things people have ever said about technology are. And and he's just brought home the gold for Australia. And that would be hilarious, especially since he's not prime minister anymore, except his successor made that law. It is now the law in Australia. Right? So so you know, this kind of this combination of like wishful thinking, authoritarianism uh, technical and administrative incompetence, um, and, and instrumentalism, right? Short-term thinking, like, well, like I have a problem that I could solve if encryption didn't work, so I will make encryption not work and not worry about the problems that will cause because that's someone else's problem. That combination, it's alive and well all over, and it's not just encryption, right? Like that's the climate debate, right? That's like a million different domains in which we have problems that are a long way off uh you know the consequences are a long way off there's some immediate benefit to not worrying about it now uh and people just say like uh you know someone else will figure it out later
1: Mm. so sounds like something i I would say (laughs) i just i just feel bad because that sounds i would definitely look somebody in their eyes and say i'm gonna need you to nerd harder on this
0: yeah i would be the guy to tell you to go fuck off i mean it's it's one of those situations (laughs) where it's like like, there's I guess there it it stems in some cases you know outside of you know barring you know greed and complete ignorance It, it stems from um, people understanding that as we as we harden the ability of encryption and the systems we build using this encryption, um, you make it very, very difficult to find out um who's being a shitty person because yeah. it, with it, with any given strong tool, it could be used for good or good, used for bad. And the people who we've basically delegated to try and find the bad people, we're simultaneously making their jobs incredibly hard. Um, but like, what do you do? I mean, I'm not going to not well, do this. I sure, I, I value privacy and security over, over everything else.
2: Well, and I, I think that um, this is one of those areas where there actually is some gray space because making the job harder is not the same as making the job impossible. So uh, there was a, a really important piece of reporting in the New York Times recently about the proliferation of the images of the sexual abuse of children, what, what's sometimes colloquially called child pornography, uh, online and particularly that a lot of it is shared on Facebook Messenger and that Facebook is actually a pretty good corporate citizen about locating this stuff and, uh, and calling cops on people when they, when they catch it. But Facebook Messenger is adding a layer of encryption and the police say well one of the tools that we currently use to catch people who trade in this despicable material is being taken away from us is how is it responsible for facebook to have a forum where we can't be there given that if we're there um, we can stop bad things from happening and you know on the one hand this presumes that this historic accident that facebook messenger wasn't encrypted is is um something like a divine right as opposed to a a momentary uh a momentary lapse you know you could imagine if um you know the kind of airbnb uh proliferation of hidden cctv cameras had become kind of the norm for every rental accommodation and hotel room that we might live in a world in which every time you check into a hotel room or rent an apartment there's a camera streaming from a 24 7 to the owner of that building right and You might say, well, I understand that this can be used to fight crime. It it helps us solve some of the most pernicious crimes that are very hard to catch, like domestic violence, which is a a genuine scourge and is really, really hard to catch. One of the problems with predictive policing systems, normally predictive policing punishes black and brown people and poor people, but it actually also punishes wealthy women because um, uh, domestic violence is most frequently caught when neighbors phone in complaints and if you live in a fully detach, detached home it is much less likely that you will uh that your domestic violence will be detected and reported to the police early on and you will likely end up in much worse trouble and so we could stop the scourge of domestic violence if only we put a camera in every bedroom and and every room of every rental accommodation we could we could uh, catch all kinds of sexual assault including the sexual assault on children and and you know if we lived in that accidental world uh, and someone said, well, as important as all those things are, I do think that I would just like to not have a camera in my bedroom, the police could say, well, you're making our jobs a lot harder. And it's true, but it doesn't outweigh that policy priority. And, you know, I can't help but note that is, although it's woefully under-policed today and woefully underpunished, we do, in fact, have a robust policing effort Directed at all of the crimes that would be interdicted if we had cameras in people's living rooms and a lot of the problems that arise from prosecuting those crimes Come not a, as a result of a lack of evidence, but a lack of political will on the part of police and prosecutors and judges to Appropriately punish powerful people when they get a, when when they're caught committing these crimes, you know, see Jeffrey Epstein and so there are plenty of other policy levers that we can pull And just because something makes the police's job easier, it doesn't presumptively follow that such a thing would be good or right. And, you know, I'm not an American, but I live in America. And one of the things that you see when you look at the framing documents of this country, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and so on, they are deliberately designed to make the police's job harder, right? Because when the police's job is too easy, there is a temptation for the police to do things that are wrong and so we live in a country where that debate was actually settled in its first moments right the, the question do we make the police's job harder or uh, do we make people's lives less secure from bad cops that question was answered literally the day the country came into existence and um, that might be a question we want to reopen but we shouldn't pretend that this country doesn't already operate on that principle
1: So in our community, we have a phrase um, that we like to use when it comes to, I'd say all problems, and that is Bitcoin fixes this. (laughs) How do we, how is Bitcoin (laughs) going to fix this? No, well, so we've got this. So what I hear in all this is that the public is just drastically undereducated on all of these things, and they will probably be forever. But could cryptocurrency be an impetus to start kind of raising the awareness in that general level of education as to, like, how all of this shit works? And maybe if we understand how that works, maybe there's just a more educated populace. Let me, Bitcoin, let me, let me, let
0: me rephrase that in a, in, a, in a different way, which I think is a little bit more general, uh, but kind of mm-hmm. drives the same thing home. And that is, uh, I think, uh, this is my personal belief, and uh, I think he follows me here, is that uh, cryptocurrencies – and they're, I guess, how they've come, in, come into light. And if they become valuable people and if they became commonplace, give people an incentive to learn about taking responsibility for these things and thinking about these things appropriately. Um, I think that's a valuable lesson. And I don't know how to do it otherwise, because, like you said, they're probably going to remain ignorant unless they have some incentive to do so, to, to not be so.
2: Hmm. So I don't think you're going to like my answer. Let's go. <laughs> Because <laughs> I, I I think that um, not the idea of cryptocurrency, but the way cryptocurrency is used and promoted is in large part part of the problem, not part of the solution. And and let me unpack where where I'm coming from here. So uh, we live in an intensely technical world, and not just when it comes to cryptography or uh, cybersecurity, right? The the number of technical questions that you have to get right in order to thrive, or even just to live out the day without accidentally dying. It's a very large number of questions, right? Like your doctor writes your prescription for opioids and tells you they're not addictive. Is 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 she right or wrong? Um, is the reinforced steel joist holding up the ceiling over your head right now? Was the standard that defined it and the math that the engineers used to build it, was that technically sufficient? Or is your roof going to fall in and kill you? I really right? like that. Like,
0: before you continue, I'm sorry. I really like that sure. both Alicia and Dee looked up when you said that and just checked ah, to just check to make sure that things yeah. were probably okay.
2: <laughs> and and yeah. you know is is um is the uh, food preparation standards that were used to prepare your dinner were they adequate or are you going to be dead before breakfast? Uh, and we cannot any of us master all of these technical questions. It, it's, it's a very complicated matter to, to understand these issues well enough to make good choices about them, you know, um, to, just to understand, like, why we should believe doctors when they make claims about the safety of vaccines, but why we shouldn't believe doctors when they were making claims about the safety of Oxycontin and fentanyl. You would have to, first of all, become so media literate that you could distinguish high quality scientific journals from low quality scientific journals. And then you would have to become so statistically literate that you could evaluate the studies in both kinds of journals to figure out whether they were robust or, or poorly performed studies. And then you would have to have the domain expertise in epidemiology, cell biology and, and related fields to actually evaluate the specific claims being made about the statistically significant results in the study. And that's just to understand one of those domains. And then you have to do it all over again for the anti-lock braking system in your car and the food safety in your food and the the curriculum that your kids are being taught in school, right? These empirical questions are difficult to resolve individually. So historically, what we've had are truth-seeking exercises. And in truth-seeking exercises, you have a body that is seen as legitimate, like a regulator or a blue, blue ribbon committee or uh, an outside panel of experts that create standards. And that body is bound by strict ethical guidelines so that they have graceful failure modes. So that if they're wrong, it's not because someone's paying them to be wrong. Um, And uh, they operate in a transparent way so that if they make the normal mistakes that are common to all of us through their own human frailty, we can see those mistakes and we can call them on it. And they entertain submissions from everyone who has claims about what the best thing to do is about what is sufficient and what isn't and they adjudicate from among those claims to figure out what it is they they're going to recommend to us what they're going to make our standard or our rule and then they show their work right they publish their work so that we can all see it and so that we can examine it and then they're backstopped by an appeals process that allows us to introduce new facts into evidence as our understanding of the empirical objective world changes. And that process, it works even when our lawmakers are not experts in, those, in the fields that the process is working on. You know, as far as I know, there are no microbiologists in Congress, but the fact that we're not all dead of cholera from our drinking water tells you that the lawmakers don't have to be experts in the domain. They just have to be experts in what an honest process looks like so that they can exercise oversight in it. But something changed over the last 40 years. We've had a steady dismantling of the things that made our society pluralistic. We've had a dismantling of high marginal rates of tax on the richest Americans. The 400 richest Americans paid less tax than any other group of Americans last year. Uh, It's the first time in recorded history that's happened. We've had a relaxation and eventually a total dismantling of our antitrust rules that used to prohibit companies from growing by snuffing out their nascent competitors, buying them and killing them or merging with their major competitors or cornering entire vertical markets. And we've had a suite of other uh, tools or other uh, reforms and changes that has led us to the most unequal and most concentrated industry that we've ever experienced, right? More than the the Gilded Age, more than the Eve of the French Revolution. We now have an internet that consists of five giant websites filled with screenshots from the other four. And some people will tell you that's because of like market, uh, um, network effects, or first mover advantage. But you know, when you actually look at what the companies did to grow, they just violated antitrust law. You know, Google's mm-hmm. a company that only ever made two products, right? One and a half, really. They made a really good search engine, a pretty good Hotmail clone. And everything else is a company they bought, which they wouldn't have been allowed to buy. You know, Facebook lost the largest ever number of American users in its operating history last year, 15 million 13 to 34 year olds. But they all ended up on Instagram, a Facebook subsidiary that they should have never been allowed to buy, right? So, you know, (laughs) here we are right in this moment in which our truth-seeking exercises have ceased to function as truth-seeking exercises and they become auctions instead, where the truth is up for, for bid. So there is like a whole set of douchebag tech companies. I call them Vichy Vichy nerds who sell services to government that allow them to conduct mass surveillance, right? If you read Snowden's biography, you know, the reason he was working for Booz Allen and Dell and all these other companies, these beltway bandits, is because they provide the technical capability for mass surveillance. They are a constituency that lobbies and lobbies hard with a big wide open checkbook for revisions to our law to preserve their ability to spy on us, right? So, you know, the the problem is that unless we can return to empiricism, that unless we can have, like, honest, legitimate truth-seeking exercises, the ability for your browser or your thumb drive or your internet to keep your cryptocurrency safe is contingent on it not goring the ox of a billionaire to make it unsafe, right? Of some billionaire outbidding you in a truth seeking exercise to introduce structural problems into our network and technology policy that mean that you can never ever be safe because information security is a team sport. Your security may not be the place where you get attacked. You may get attacked on the security of someone else that you do business with and their weak link becomes the way in for all of it. So I... I think that's the issue.
0: So you're saying that like, you don't think, you think what Bitcoin is trying to do Um, and other blockchain technologies is not necessarily a a terribly bad thing, but it's highlighting an issue that isn't the issue and taking attention away from the real one?
2: No, the last part I'm going to say, and this is the part you're actually not going to like, which is that when you enable um, money launderers and looters and oligarchs, to loot their national treasury, you create the billionaire, corrupt billionaire class that turns our truth seeking exercises. Ah, so we're facilitating into, the
0: thing we're facilitating the that's problem, the problem. By, so that's and, the same situation not, we came back to earlier. And that is if you right. create a tool that gives people this power and, and other people not to stop it, then it can use it for good or bad. And you're saying the bad side of this tool is is worse than the good.
2: No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that within the cryptocurrency world, mm-hmm. there is a large constituency of people who cheer on the, the fact not of autonomy or um, of uh, being able to evade controls by corrupt states or whatever, but just explicitly cheer on the idea of money laundering and who devote themselves to financial secrecy in service not of, of human liberation, but of, um, you know, for example, evading Chinese capital controls. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not saying that everyone has a responsibility to figure out how to make a cryptocurrency that works perfectly, except when we need it to fail. I'm just saying that within your community, there's a large number of people who are cheering on some some pretty rotten things. You know, it would be as if in the privacy world there were cryptographers who, whenever they gathered to discuss how great their ciphers worked and how good their implementations were, they all rubbed their hands together and said, we've we've sure made a lot of child pornographers safe today. Right. (laughs) You know. It's, it's I'm, I'm not saying that it's their responsibility to stop child pornographers, but I am saying that if they're if they're glad about the applications of their technology for uh, child pornography, they're on the wrong side of things. Right. They're not they're not helping. And there may be ways to make tools that are more useful for good things than for bad things. Um, but even if there aren't, you know, welcoming the looter class into your community And into your conferences and into your events and into your code checkouts and you know making them committers and all of that other stuff um it it ends with them suborning your whole technology right i i I used to live in london and right around the corner for us there was a a club called shortage house It's part of the soho house chain and uh we lived in east london and we were really near the finance district the, the city of london which is basically ground zero for the global looter class and uh they had a rule first of all they had an informal rule that they wouldn't allow anyone to become a member if they worked in finance but then they also didn't want members to bring people who worked in finance over to the club so they also had a rule that you couldn't wear a suit or a tie so that you you would have to go home and change before someone could bring you to the club and there was a practical reason for that which is that bankers could outspend everyone else but not even bankers wanted to hang out with other bankers and so once you let bankers into your cool artsy club they would outspend all the artsy people and then uh all the artsy people would leave and then there would just be bankers and then they would leave because they didn't want to hang out with each other right so so mm. <laughs> when you when you get into bed with the procurers and enablers of global oligarchy uh you will find yourself very disappointed in the morning mm.
1: It's that last boss I keep talking about, Corey.
2: <laughs> What's the last boss? I just like have this, like Glados at the end that, of, uh, Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: I just have this theory that like, well, when I got into Bitcoin, and I got into crypto. I was like, oh, this is great. This is gonna like decentralize the power. It's gonna give power back to the people. But in reality, it there's a very large probability it's gonna create the last boss of middlemen and like authority and. It's just going to be bad if it's not kept under control. That's all. It's like
2: yeah. on.
0: and the process of trying so. to disintermediate the middleman, we there's a there's a potential that we just create the best middleman.
2: Yeah, and you know Lawrence Lessig, who's this great cyber lawyer, he talks about how the world is regulated by four forces, right? It's it's not just law; it's also code. What's technologically possible. So you can think of Bitcoin as as a code intervention. It's norms. What's socially acceptable, right? So this is the thing I'm kind of I'm kind of giving you guys a little bit of uh, shit for. Is that you know for, as far as I can tell, within your community, it is socially acceptable to rub your hands together and talk about how rich you're getting, helping uh, Chinese looters smuggle money out of the Chinese state and use it to buy empty safe deposit boxes in the sky in Vancouver or wherever, right? Um, and and there's uh, there's markets. What's profitable? That's clearly another big Bitcoin um, intervention in the world. Um, and, uh, so there's law, there's code, there's norms, and there's markets, right? These four forces work together. And it's really easy when you're good at one of them, right? Like if you're really good at figuring out how to get people to put money into cryptocurrency, you think markets are going to solve all your problems. And then you run up against the limit of markets to solve your problems. You go, I guess this problem is insoluble. Maybe the problem is solvable with, um, not with markets, but with norms, right? Maybe making it so that Uh, people who are, uh, part of the financial global laundry are just beyond the pale. You know, they, 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 they have a lot of money, but no one wants to be their friends. They, they, you can't, you don't let them into your (laughs) clubhouse. Right. And that might not solve everything, but it's certainly like in the same way that now everyone's like lining up to figure out how far they can run from Jeffrey Epstein. Whereas a couple of years ago, they were all trying to get on, on his jet, you know, maybe once those people are beyond the pale, that, um, will open up more space for legal reforms or for uh you know other kinds of reforms businesses that are built around sustainable finance instead of looter finance you know that's the possibility and so i'm not saying that like your cryptocurrency doesn't have a place uh, a role to play it might i'm just saying that when you run out of things that your cryptocurrency that can solve it doesn't mean you're out of solutions it just means that you're out of technical and market solutions not legal and normative solutions
0: so I wouldn't say that. Um, first off, I, I want to say that I don't, I don't believe that a small group of assholes who is typically the loudest is um, a large portion of the of the community, and I don't want to base the entirety of this of this ecosystem on that loud group of assholes. And while you're right that they exist, I don't condone them, and I know many people who I'm. Uh, who I work with and know and understand don't condone them as well. But there's also one of those situations where I can't really stop them either because I have no ability to. Um, and I also believe that a lot of this stuff is incredibly early. Um, we're just mm-hmm. now finding some of the like the cats out of the bag with Satoshi making the like origination of blockchain. And then we discovered how to do digital scarcity in a trustless way. And we're kind of playing in a research way of how to do this best and that's where a lot of the stuff you just mentioned could come into play to help really transform a lot of the stuff in the way that it should be but i guess that takes good humans to do it and and that for that to actually happen
2: well and i I think we can be good humans right like i I mean you know it's very fashionable for people to think that um humans are uh are, are toxic messes um and and you know certainly like speaking in my uh, in my capacity as a dystopian science fiction writer it can make my job easier, um, <laughs> but but the reality is that like we live in a world that is a testament to our ability to cooperate and even to make investments that outlive us uh, that are about doing the right thing for our species right whether that's the the people who rush back into Chernobyl and Fukushima uh, to sacrifice themselves to say save, save their neighbors or just the incredible thousands of people who labored harder than any paycheck could be worth to build the great cities and infrastructure of our of our country now some of them were in fact slave labor or coerced labor but there is an enormous amount of goodwill among people and if there wasn't if we were if we were the sort of people that um, homo economicus is meant to be that that we're told we we must be in the standard economic account of, of humans as these selfish uh, utility maximizers, it's hard to imagine how we would have had any of these things come into existence. You know, we, we, we are clearly capable of thinking beyond the family unit or beyond our, our individual gain and to think about our communities and even our world, you know, with all these kids marching in the streets surrounded by grownups telling them, well, what makes you think we can solve climate change? don't you know that nobody cares about it as they march through the streets going, we care about climate change. We care about climate change. You know, it's, it is a remarkable thing.
1: I don't know. I'm still stuck. I think there's 50, 50. That's it.
2: So the thing is people are mixed bags, right? Like this is the one thing that, that the right wing traditional economists have, right? Is that incentives matter? Right? If you create a society where you only get to thrive by being a sociopathic bastard, and then forty years later, everyone who's running things is a sociopathic bastard, it doesn't tell you much about human nature. It just tells you about what happens when when the only fitness function that allows people to thrive is one that is ultimately bad for for our whole civilization. You know, it, it is profoundly statistically illiterate to imagine that 99.9% of people are bastards when you and everyone you know are basically just a mixed bag who has good days and bad days and depending on whether or not you've had enough sleep and whether you're, you're, you're calm that day you can put up with someone else's BS and talk them down from their, from their rages or you meet fire with fire until you're both on fire um, and, and and to say, okay, well, 99.9% of people are bastards, but me and everyone I know are just statistically, like, normal, just flawed vessels. What are the odds that if 99.9% of people are total bastards that you and everyone you know would be more or less okay, right? Maybe everyone's more or less okay.
0: I would agree with yeah. that. I, mean, I think incentives are what drive people to act and then act within the context appropriately. But in order to have incentives, you need to create systems that have good rules in them like every system has sure every system has losers like i could think the, the the kind of the whole goal of mechanism design is to optimize for the least amount of losers so depending on what you're doing um and so yeah you know so how do you build the system you have to you have to be able to build the systems and in order to do that you need to create proper incentives and i think that's what a good in my opinion that's one of the main pushes of this whole decentralized blockchain technology is to try and experiment with creating different systems mm-hmm. that give, uh, I guess, proper incentives and disincentives, sticks and carrots to make people re- like act the way they would normally act, but then tend towards the, I guess, quote unquote, good of a system.
2: So I guess the question is, um, how do we build technical systems where um, being kind and uh, sharing and thinking about the good of the system and not just your own personal utility uh, is rewarded, right? And 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 I think that you have people who are systems designers who've done that. I mean, I think Napster was that. Um, Napster didn't require you to have your file sharing open, but if you did, uh, you made the network stronger. And then you also... Um, sometimes you know, like in the heyday of Napster, I know I know that I'm I'm old to be talking about Napster, but uh, in the heyday of Napster, if you had a a SharePoint full of really interesting music, people would just start IMing you through Napster to say like, where did you get all these amazing Talking Heads rarities? I love Talking Heads, and you know you would get there was this incentive to like share that um even though it would it would use up your upstream bandwidth and maybe tip off your campus administrator that you were sharing and what have you and it worked really well right it wasn't it wasn't the collapse of a sharing ethic that killed napster it was a lawsuit from bertelsman
0: uh, i would also argue that that's not a sustainable model um because it because specifically it didn't incentivize it didn't give incentives for the creators um
2: oh no they had it they had that worked out they because they had a A a choke point you know with the Napster server they were going to charge ten to fifteen dollars they had more than half their users polled who agreed to do it it was the fastest adopted technology in the history of the world 52 million people in 18 months Uh, and uh, the Bertelsmann they basically went to Bertelsmann and said tell us how many zeros you want at the end of the check and Bertelsmann said there is no amount of zeros that are enough zeros for us to leave you standing you have to go away I mean, Napster was just part of like a very long tradition in mm-hmm. how uh, art and technology interact. Right. You know, when the the first um, uh, phonograms came along, the the wax cylinders and then the, the records, the people who made sheet music, the songwriters who thought of themselves as the music industry, as opposed to the performers who were like trained monkeys who followed recipes that the sheet music writers wrote down, um, those people thought that anyone who recorded their music and sold it was stealing from them because why should a trained monkey get to profit from recording music that I wrote? And, um, they just wanted phonograms destroyed, right? John Philip Sousa went to Congress and said, if the infernal talking machine is allowed to continue, we'll lose our, our voice boxes as we lost our tails when we came down out of the trees. And so then, you know, Congress legalized the phonogram by creating a compulsory royalty. You know, if you give them two cents per record, you can record any song. Along comes radio radio starts playing records. Uh, the people who stole the sheet music to make the records turned to the radio people and say, oh, when I was doing that, that was the legitimate progress of, of the arts. When you do it, that's just theft. They said that th- they wouldn't license anything for radio. Uh, ASCAP, which is the big collecting society, refused to license anything. They were the only quote-unquote legitimate collecting society because they represented white mainstream artists. Uh, but another collecting society called BMI, which represented um, blues, uh, rock and well early jazz and um, uh, country and western what was called hillbilly music which was the illegitimate music started licensing to radio and uh, all these like legit artists who are not getting a dime from radio play went back to ASCAP and said you have to start licensing for radio so radio came into existence then cable comes along and starts sucking down broadcast signals without permission and the broadcasters who stole from the people who made records who stole from the people who made sheet music uh, they said, <laughs> well, when we did it, that was legitimate. But when you, like, charge people money, like, the first cable operator was um, a guy in, in Pennsylvania. who was a TV salesman who lived too far from Pittsburgh or Philly for anyone to get broadcast signals. So no one wanted to buy a TV. So he built a giant antenna, Community Access TV, CATV, and then ran wires into people's houses to sell them televisions. So the broadcasters went after him. Congress legalized it through a thing called a consent decree. So then, so then, you know, the, the VCR comes along in 76 and from 76 to 84, the cable operators and the movie studios sued Sony over the VCR. And they said, well, when we stole the broadcast signals, that was legitimate but when you take the cable signals and put them on VHS cassettes that's a form of theft <laughs> it's the
0: wonderful and then, like i think rick and morty described this in one of their episodes where they keep going into their flugel boxes and stuff i don't know if you watch rick and morty <laughs> they 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 nailed this whole scenario so perfectly
2: sure yeah 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 and then you know and then of course sony makers of the vcr were at the forefront Dude. of the lawsuits at, against Napster. right so you know like everyone every pirate wants to be an admiral right like Everyone who gets up the ladder wants to kick it away and stop anyone else from coming up behind them. You know, the, the, the reason that musicians aren't compensated isn't because there aren't enough dollars in the record industry. There's more dollars in the record industry than there were pre-Napster adjusted for inflation thanks to streaming. Mm-hmm. Just none of those dollars reach musicians <laughs> because they all have shitty deals with their record labels because there's four record labels because we let them buy all their competitors, right? And when there's only four companies, they have a buyer's market for your labor.
0: And you think that's why, like the evolution of Napster, which is BitTorrent, didn't didn't fix this because it was already too bad of a problem?
2: Yeah, I mean B- BitTorrent. Well, it went to BitTorrent, then it went to Torrentless trackers, yeah. then it went to lockers, and so on. And you know, eventually, some people got legit first through Spotify, and then through through um, Apple Music, and then you know the unlimited Apple Music, and then unlimited um, Amazon Music, and and uh, Pandora, and so on. But the the deals that the uh, labels have with the artists are actually the biggest problem. And, uh, you know, there is a a solution to it that actually exists within the framework of US copyright, which is that under US copyright, after 35 years, you can invoke something called the reversion clause. So even if you signed a contract that says, I sign away my rights forever, after 35 years, you can say, I've changed my mind. And so, although most music is not commercially viable after 14 years, um, I think the median is like eight. Uh, there is still a small minority of music that is disproportionately profitable after 35 years. And those musicians, by and large, have now been going back to their labels and invoking reversion. I'm on the board of a charity called the Authors Alliance that helps academic authors use reversion to take their copyrights back from the um, scholarly journals. That is a condition of publishing you, which you have to do if you want to rise to the academic ranks, they insist on taking your whole copyright in perpetuity and then they paywall it so that your university has to pay to read the works that you gave them for free that your university paid you to produce. And so now Authors Alliance has an automated tool to help scholarly authors claw back after 35 years their copyrights from the big scholarly journals and put them in the public domain. Mm.
1: So, Not to like reel back the conversation, but I mean, you guys talked about incentives. You both bounced it back, but maybe, I mean, the incentives don't always have to be monetary or technical, right? If you Mm -hmm. mention these four pillars, then maybe for, you know, for a technology to gain adoption or the fervor of most everyone, maybe the incentives have to be aligned in the norms or Mm -hmm. in the, I guess the law, I think it was the other one that you mentioned. Um, Yeah, because because you're absolutely right, like even when I was a fucking school teacher, when I said, yeah, I'm really into Bitcoin, people go, "Ew! like
2: what's
1: (laughs) what's what are you doing with that? And I'm like, what? I mean, it's money. And they're like, no, it's not. It's for everything that's bad on the planet. And so I was like, wait, so maybe the incentives have to be aligned in those other. There's a guy.
2: There, the, like the early history of cryptography is really interesting for understanding this. There's this guy called John Gilmore, who's employee number six at Sun, designed the Spark chip, helped write Solaris, wrote GCC, the compiler that like half the code you're using right now is run on. and And John founded the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And um, the first fight the EFF really fought, the first one was actually over Steve Jackson Games who made like a D&D style game for about hackers that the FBI mistook for a manual for cybercrime and raided them over. But the first big fight we fought was when the NSA was classing uh, cryptography as a munition and refused to allow uh, companies to make strong crypto. And um, John got involved in that. He wanted to show that the cipher that the NSA was making available for civilian use that they knew how to break but they said no one else would be able to break that it wasn't very good so he designed this computer called the des cracker uh the the cypher was called des defense defense encryption standard uh specifically it was des 50 50-bit des and um it's a quarter million dollar collection of of custom asics that's a thing that i don't have to tell a bitcoin audience what that is can you can you tell uh, us
0: what the what you colloquially referred to it as
2: uh, we called it Deep Crack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we, so John built Deep Crack. Uh, Deep Crack, as I'm speaking to you, Deep Crack is about three feet from me. Uh, and one of its circuit boards is framed on my, uh, on one of its logic boards is framed on my wall. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece of equipment because John got tired of keeping it in his garage. So he's given it to me on permanent loan. So he built Deep Crack, it was a quarter million dollar computer, could brute force the entire key space of DES50 in two hours. And he we went to the judge and we said like, here is Deep Crack. In two hours, we can own everything that is protected with the cipher that NSA wants everything in America to be protected with, the finance system, everything. And although that didn't eventually win, it shows you kind of where John's thinking is at. He's, he's a big technological guy. The way we actually won that case was we represented DJB, Daniel J. Bernstein, who's a famous cryptographer, who was then a Berkeley grad student, and was publishing ciphers on Usenet, which was the text-only precursor to the web. And we said the First Amendment protects his right to put source code on the internet because code is a form of expressive speech. And although no one had listened when we showed them that DES50 wasn't sufficient, my boss Cindy Cohen, who was then a lawyer at EFF and is now EFF's executive director, successfully argued to the Ninth Circuit and to the appellate division that code was a form of expressive speech. And that's how we ended up with legalized strong crypto. That's 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 why you have cryptocurrency, is because of that case. So John is famous for that, but he's also famous for this phrase he coined, the internet interprets censorship and routes around it. That's a that's a thing that people used to say all the time. And some people think that what John meant by that was that our technical systems are so robust that if you try to censor the internet, it will backfire on you because the technology will get around it. But it wasn't. It wasn't a technical statement at all. He was talking in the days of Usenet. Right. He was talking where in the days in which what amounted to like yeoman smallholders would run individual (laughs) computers that they would connect one to the other to build the Internet and where they labored with every hour God sent to keep this janky, weird Internet all running where every day all day long things were breaking down and they were getting up in the middle of the night to fix them getting on conference calls helping one another throwing source code back and forth at one another brainstorming solutions to gnarly networking problems using this primitive electronic equipment and so when he said the internet interprets censorship as damage and routes around it he meant we the guardians of the internet who built it and who nurse it along because we believe in it and its mission already know what to do when there is damage because the damage occurs all the time because our system is frail and brittle and fragile and important enough to us that we work all the time to solve that damage and when someone censors our internet this internet that we have built and maintained with our hands, we ourselves, because we believe in the ethic of this internet, we will treat that censorship as damage and we will route around it using the techniques that we have developed and the norms that we have developed around it. So John was being normative. So when we talk about how you make a robust system and the incentives that matter, there is no substitute for the intrinsic motivation of people who believe in the cause. You know, the technology is important, right? If they didn't, if they hadn't figured out the technology, it all wouldn't have worked. But no amount of technology in the world can motivate people to do what those people did. And no amount of money would have done it either, right? They did it because they believed in their cause.
1: Hmm. I had a daymare the other day. Sorry for you guys that don't know what a daymare is. It's a nightmare, but in the daytime. Yep. That like, she <laughs> said, Yep. way familiar Uh, is like all those people that you just mentioned that were super passionate about building the internet as we see it now when like a few generations go by and like we're on generation whatever
0: who's gonna be maintaining that shit and care like people like me I mean that's 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 what I live for in a lot of ways and there's a lot of people like us I mean it's like people like the other Corey on the call like (laughs) it's the quarries <laughs> of the world. I'm just, like there's a lot of people who really care about kind of how the internet works and what's wrong with it based on the, I guess, principles that he just elucidated and try and find ways to route around it.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And so, you know, monetary incentives are great, but one of the things that we know from behavioral economics is that monetary incentives can swamp intrinsic incentives and that monetary incentives have diminishing returns, whereas intrinsic incentives have increasing returns.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right? I mean, pay, this is one of the arguments about CEO pay. is What does that CEO do for you when you give him $20 million that he doesn't do when you give him $19 million? You know? Uh, but what does someone you love do for you when you've lived with them for 10 years as opposed to nine you know <laughs> that's you know that those intrinsic motives are so important and you know like i've seen it i've, I've got an 11 year old right and and we can get her to do stuff by bribing her but like you said you were a teacher like what happens when you bribe a kid and then you ask them to do it again
0: <laughs> they, they want their hand Up candy yeah oh, the candy. Candy. oh i know how this works
2: so yeah you know like like we we really early on wanted to make her motives as intrinsic as possible so even with things like potty training you know like there are people who use gold stars and candies and whatever and i was like you know what there is a really good reason not to have your pants full of shit and that's your pants aren't full of shit and (laughs) it took a little longer (laughs) but it worked really well we didn't have relapses and we never had to fight with her Right, like she just didn't want to have her pants full of shit. Eventually, so you're saying
0: the best way to get people to learn is to make them shit their pants, and I think that's kind of what's Correct. happening. Right? Like, it's Correct. It's kind of it's,
2: we are definitely in a pants shitting moment.
0: I feel like that's yeah. the that's the like kind of general mentality of uh, society right now. Is my pants are full of shit, and I don't like this
2: i think you're right i think that we are waking up to the toxic soup of our politics and our climate and uh you know this kind of late stage grifter capitalist moment we've arrived at and saying like you know it was colorful when there was a little of this at the edges right like i'm a guy who goes to burning man every year i am that guy and i love 10 days at burning man I would not love 200 days at Burning Man, you know, (laughs) a little, a little bit of camping, uh, you know, like, like smelling yourself while you're camping out and not getting a lot of showers. That's, that's kind of romantic. You're like, I'm like a rugged outdoorsy (laughs) type doing this weird thing, you know, doing it for six months. No, thank you. Right. It, it, a lot of that stuff that was just colorful, the kind of greed is good, Gordon Gecko, that the colorfulness of that that made us put Donald Trump in the Home Alone movie, you know, or like, ah, oh, look at this funny guy with his whole like I'm a businessman larp, you know, like <laughs> it gets it gets tedious when Martin Shkreli takes away your HIV medicine and charges you $7,000 for an $8 pill. And then you know, puts photos of him flexing in front of his multi-million-dollar Wu Tang album on the internet, while you're hoping to scrape together enough money to not die. Right? Like a little of that shit goes a long way. Hmm.
0: Well, in the interest of time, like I, I could, I, we could do this for hours. I'm fascinated in this conversation, but I, I gotta go get my eleven-year-old. <laughs> like, where do we, like, where do we go from here? Maybe we wrap it up It's like, what's, what's the future look like? What's maybe is there a bright future to this?
2: yeah i think there is i think it's really hard to know in the moment whether the forces arrayed against you look so strong because they're desperately fighting because they know that um, even the smallest uh, ground lost could result in a catastrophic slide to the bottom or whether they uh, are fighting so hard because they're effectively invincible and they can afford to throw away a lot of resources you know like before the russian revolution all the adults in the room said oh no we can't have a revolution now every tiny little peasant uprising is met with an unstoppable show of force. If the Tsar has that many troops to, to throw at like, you know, six kulaks uh, and a goat, imagine what he'd do if we tried to storm the Winter Palace. It turned out the reason the Tsar was so freaked out by even the smallest rebellion is he knew that he was about to, to lose everything. So it's hard to know in the moment whether things look hopeless because uh, they are hopeless or because your adversary is fronting really hard because they know they're about to lose. Um, And, you know, I'm not a believer in plotting out a future like a novel. Uh, I don't think that um, there is a path we can chart from A to Z that gets us from here to a better future that we can know a priori. Uh, I think that the terrain that we need to traverse to get to the other side, it is unknowably complex and it's also adverse to us, right? Everything that we want to do, someone else wants to undo. And so even if you map the terrain, the map would change. The terrain would change as soon as you started to traverse the map. And so rather than using a, a kind of um, uh, you know uh, deterministic path to our better future, I think we have to use hope. Um, hope is like another name for what computer scientists call hill climbing, where when you have a, a an unknowably complex terrain, and you want to find the, the highest point in it, what you do instead of trying to plot out that terrain, you just ask yourself from where you are now, which direction takes you up the steepest gradient? And you go as far up as you can until you reach the, a point where it levels out or starts to tip downwards. And you say, okay, now which direction should I go to ascend the gradient? And you will always reach a local maximum that way. You won't necessarily get all the way to the highest point, but you'll always reach a local maximum that way. And, and hope is the belief that if you take one step to materially improve the circumstances as they are today that you will find yourself at a new higher point from which new uh, ascent paths that were not visible from where you were before are revealed and that you can take the next step further up the gradient hope is why you tread water when your ship sinks not because you have a realistic expectation of being rescued, but because the necessary but insufficient precondition for being rescued is to tread water and see if a ship turns up or a floating piece of, uh, of, of uh, uh, detritus or some other way to extend things along. And ultimately like we living things in this non-deterministic, random, unknowably complex world, all we ever have is hope, right? The illusion that there was a clear path through our future was only ever that. And so everywhere that we we got to before this, we got there by hope. And so our future will arrive by means of hope as well.
0: So a few things. One, that's a it's a wonderful out, out, uh, view of of how to move forward both individually and as a and as a society. Two, I appreciate you describing gradient descent as a computer scientist.
2: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> But I'm a fake computer scientist. I yeah. have an honorary doctorate it's, it's, in computer science.
0: It's all still wonderful. It, 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 when people use analogies like that to then, you know, use as metaphors for trotting your way through life, it's something I could definitely greatly appreciate. And three, uh, thanks for coming on the show. I really enjoyed oh, this conversation, pleasure. and uh, I hope to have you back sometime. I guess we have one more question for you, and something we always ask sure. all of our guests. And um, ten words or less, can you describe Bitcoin?
2: Uh, I don't know if this is 10 words or less, but uh, it's one that I, it's a definition I like, which is that 90% of all Bitcoin related conversations are non-consensual. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. It's in the manner of one of those things about which all discussions are non-consensual like veganism. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. Nine words. Thanks. Is that would... very good? Yeah. Okay.
2: yeah. I really appreciate this guys.
1: I'd really yeah, Thank it. you. It a great right. interview.